I'm Bill Thompson, and this is Eye on Books. American history books often compress momentous events into capsules, summaries, one-line explanations. Such has often been the case with President Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, the history-changing document that freed the slaves and changed the course of the Civil War. Well, now historian and journalist Todd Brewster restores the detail that's missing and shows us the six critical months between the time Lincoln first spoke about his intention to free the slaves and the actual release of the Emancipation Proclamation. As Brewster describes it in his book Lincoln's Gamble, it was perhaps the most tumultuous six months of Lincoln's entire presidency. He fought with his generals, disappointed his cabinet, and sank into painful bouts of clinical depression. And perhaps most surprising, Lincoln had to convince himself that emancipation was indeed the right course of action. I have to tell you, Todd, this is the kind of book I thoroughly get into because I love books that will take a what is in other history books a line and drill deep down into that line, the line being, you know, Lincoln first talked about emancipating the slaves in, two, in 1862, and then he signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. And what happens in between gets completely glossed over and missed, and your book illuminates in a marvelous way what exactly took place in those six months. And now you say it, it may be the most tumultuous six months in Abraham Lincoln's entire presidency. Yes, I, I believe they are. I mean, it's amazing the number of challenges that he faced during this time, the war being only one of them. Um, You know, his son, uh, Willie, dies in February of the year, so he's still mourning uh, the loss of of one of his boys. His other son um, actually nearly died himself at the same thing at the same time, so he's got Tad at home. Um, He's got a wife who is uh, uh, reacting to the death of of Willie with... Uh, um, great uh, uh, chagrin. She is uh, consumed by it. She's going to seances. She's looking for, to connect to him in the in the um, in, in the other world. Um, he's got a loss upon loss happening, or defeat upon defeat happening on the battlefield in the summer of 1862 uh, along the Peninsula Campaign. He's got a general, General McClellan, who is not only um, un, un, disrespectful of him, but also disrespectful of the mission. Um, does not uh, want to um, uh, punish the South, uh, has a s- Southern sympathies, uh, won't move his armies because he's a man who, who is so precise in his approach that he, he's very good at training but not great at executing. Um, he's got this continuing issue over slavery, which, as you know, going through his whole personal history has been a, something that he would have been very vocal about being opposed to slavery. Um, yet he doesn't know whether he should or when he should issue anything that might reflect upon the institution of slavery during the course of this war, because he doesn't want to offend the southern states any further, in particular the border states that might leave and join the Confederacy. So it's a tumultuous time for him, and he is uh, racked by um, indecision, by guilt, uh, by grief. Um, and it is during this six months that he becomes the great emancipator, the person that we look upon as uh, having been one of the great um, men in human history. We sometimes forget with those one lines in history books that there was a human being behind this decision. It sometimes seems with the hindsight of history that, of course, it was a natural thing. And, of course, it was the, he was going to emancipate the slaves. But when we read in your pages, as you said a moment ago, that this horrible personal agony that he was going through, not just of the personal things going on around him and the battlefields and, and things like but the, the issue of emancipation itself. He seems very, very conflicted on this. 
He is. And, and, and one of the things that I hope the book will do will show the man behind this whole story. And you've, you've hit upon really, which is the principal theme, the, the sort of the vulnerability and loneliness of leadership here on one of one of the issues that one would think would be absolutely the simplest of all, freeing people from uh, the chains of slavery. Um, he has constitutional questions to address. He doesn't really have the power to do it. Uh, he decides finally to do it as an act of war, but even there, that will create more complications, which we can talk about in a minute. Um, he himself is not necessarily a fan of equality. He is against slavery, but he doesn't believe in the equality of the races. He's pessimistic about the future for a biracial or multiracial America because, in part of his racial prejudice, but also because he feels that there's such resentment coming from the institution of slavery that how could it ever be forgiven? And that it's best that we take look upon blacks uh, as a race that we will import off and colonize off back to Africa or other other parts of South America in order to start over again in a in an all white country. Well, I want to come back to something that you alluded to a moment ago, and that is the the constitutional limits that Lincoln faced. Here was a president who had, it sounds to me as I'm reading your book, the utmost respect for the office of the presidency, the Constitution of the United States of America, as he was understanding it. And he didn't, did it ever even occur to him to do something that might touch on the fringes, the outer boundaries of his power? Did he ever think about, well, I can overstep myself a little bit here because it's for a greater cause. Well, he certainly did. And that was um, an issue that has uh, dogged him throughout history. People who have looked upon Lincoln's life and Lincoln's presidency often point to his um, uh, uh, extra constitutional use of, of power. Uh, he suspended habeas corpus, mm -hmm. uh, which is allowed for in the Constitution, but is allowed for in Article One, which is the article that addresses the powers of Congress, not the presidency. And Chief Justice Roger Taney took him to task for this. Um, Lincoln said, so what? I'm still going to do it. Um, the way that Lincoln looked upon um, the Constitution was that it was important to uh, to uh, be faithful to it, but not to the point where it was a suicide pact, as Robert, Justice Robert Jackson once referred to the uh, Bill of Rights uh, in, in um, uh, the late 1940s. It's not to be addressed as a suicide pact. It's not something where you would say, okay, I won't suspend habeas corpus because the Constitution doesn't allow me to, but in the process, the entire country will come down, the Constitution itself will be lost, and we'll have a crisis of greater magnitude. So he was he looked upon the war powers as emergency kind of powers where he could, in order to protect uh, um, and defend the Constitution of the United States, that he needed sometimes to do things that were extra-constitutional. Well, indeed, if he didn't, uh, didn't maybe bend the Constitution a little bit, there would be no union whose Constitution he needed to save. Right. But of course, you know, one of the remarkable things about American history is that the man who did that had such respect for the Constitution, such respect for the law, that he did not abuse that power. I mean, there are emergency constitutional uh, provisions in many constitutions, including uh, the, the German Constitution of 1933, when, a, a, when uh, Adolf Hitler makes the decision for to create an emergency where he has extra constitutional powers that lasted right through to the end of the war. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, it can be abused if it's, if it's uh, adopted by the wrong person. And as a precedent, it's an extremely dangerous thing to do. But he understood that it was so dangerous. And so when Congress returned, he asked them for the powers that he had already um, exercised, and they 
willfully uh, granted those to him. So he was aware of the, the fragility of the Constitution, respectful of it, uh, even as he was uh, bending and twisting it. It really came to the fore in the, in the Emancipation Proclamation because here we have a document that actually uh, protected slavery in the Constitution uh, and protected private property. Of course, the slaves were considered to be private property. So Lincoln did not have that power to, in a sense, seize private property without uh, um, uh, just compensation. That's right there in the Constitution. So instead, what he did was he used, did it as an act of war where he said, all right, I, the, the slaves are really important to the conduct of the Confederate Army. Um, they serve as a labor source. Uh, undermining that labor source will give us a better chance of winning the war and therefore f- freeing the slaves um, is part of a, a war strategy that I'm going to adopt. Of course, the problem with that is twofold. One is that he didn't have power over the states where the slaves were being held in the South, uh, so he couldn't actually exercise that power immediately. Um, and, and, and then the, this, the second issue is one uh, where, where he, he actually uh, uh, had, uh, did, where he did have power, which was in the uh, uh, border states, uh, slavery continued. <laughs> I tell you, I have learned so much about this this short Emancipation Proclamation just in reading your book. I, 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 and I'm fascinated. Yeah, I guess you might also refer to his actions in, in seizing the property in, as an act of war as almost a, uh, an asset forfeiture law of its day. Yes, you could. Um, now, the laws of war, as they were understood by gentlemen in that day and age, uh, didn't include seizing of property, uh, didn't, didn't involve uh, civil society, and uh, so, of course, when Lincoln uh, adopted this, he was accused by the Confederacy of, of uh, um, uh, going beyond the, uh, the rules of Christian warfare. And even those who, who served under him, uh, General McClellan never would have, who was, had been re- relieved by the time the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, but he never would have fought a war that would have involved uh, the, an attack on the institution of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's a shift not only in for the country, it's a shift also for the conduct of war. Uh, going forward from there, a lot of people say that the uh, Civil War is the first total war, like the total wars of the 20th century, in which um, the targeting is not only of, of, of uh, army versus army, but army versus society. And so the taking apart of, of the, of the, the uh, very pillars of Southern society was part of the strategy that Lincoln adopted going into 1863, and the Emancipation Proclamation was part of it. Well, indeed, as you write, the proclamation really did change the course of the entire war, which was, of course, Lincoln's intent, was it not? It was, and and there was one really critical part in the way in which it, it changed the conduct of the war, and it's it was something that was only added in the very last draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. There were really three drafts. One he read to the cabinet in July of uh, 1862. A second one was the one that he published as what we call the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation right after the Battle of Antietam in September uh, 1862. And then there's the final version, which he signed and was um, uh, then therefore made an act of law. And it is in that one that he encourages the freed slaves to enlist in the Union Army. And in other words, they would, they would be freed from the, uh, the, the, army, the Union Army would march in uh, as an army of liberation, free the slaves, and then they would go and enlist and put on blue uniforms and return to the South 
and bring a new vigor to the fight, which they did. 180,000 to roughly 200,000, somewhere there. The numbers are not exact. Uh, uh, black soldiers, most of them former slaves, who invigorated the Union cause, similar to the way that the Americans invigorated the, uh, the Allied cause in World War I, arriving in 1918. So the war took on a new energy with the arrival of the Emancipation Proclamation, not only because it freed the slaves and robbed the Confederacy of that source of labor, but it also gave new uh, soldiers to the ranks of the Union Army. Mm -hmm. Now, for all of the angst that Lincoln suffered during these six months, did it relieve anything once he'd actually issued the proclamation? I mean, did he feel any better afterwards? You know, I, I think that Lincoln, um, you know, his former law partner, uh, William Herndon, uh, said that uh, melancholy dripped from him as he walked. <laughs> In other words, that we have a, a sort of depressive personality here, someone who obsesses about decisions. In fact, much of his uh, writing and much of his speaking, and you can actually see this even in the movie, Lincoln, is spent sort of working out problems in front of other people and, um, uh, and, and giving a voice to things that are really going on in his head. So he continued to worry, of course. That was part of his character. He was proud of the decision, proud in a way that he was certainly not as he as he stewed over it for the six months going from July 1862 to January 1863, he spoke of it with great glowing terms of one of his, great, his greatest achievements. So he, he certainly got relief in that sense, but he continued to worry that, that a biracial America would never work. He continued to consider uh, options for colonizing the blacks outside of the country. Uh, and of course, um, again, uh, well done in the movie, Lincoln. Uh, he had no... Um, confidence that the uh, uh, emancipation of the slaves could stick as a as a uh, war measure. Remember, it would expire with the war itself. It could no longer be upheld in a legal sense. So he needed that 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery before the war ended. And of course, that's the subject of Steven Spielberg's excellent film. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I just I, I have to say before we close that I really appreciate uh, what Joseph Ellis said about your book, he said, this story has been told before, but never as well. And I, I, I have to say, I, I can't disagree with that. Well, that's very kind of you, Bill. I, I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's a book that I feel very close to. It's, um, I, I, I enjoyed working on this book because I think it's about a, such an important subject and bringing out the humanity of a leader, showing his vulnerability and recognizing for all readers that the, that Lincoln was first and foremost a man, that it was these people who lead us don't come out on high like gods that light on earth for a few days. They are you and me and everyone else, and they struggle and get up and make wrong decisions, make right decisions. They have to have the courage to keep on going on. I, I'd say Lincoln is endlessly fascinating, and I hope I've contributed something to the literature on Lincoln, which is significant. That is, the literature itself is significant. Um, and I, I hope that people will read it uh, and come away with a fresh understanding of the man and of the time in American history. Indeed. And do you have a website? I do. You're very kind to ask. It's www.lincolnsgamble.com. Um, and it's um, I, there you'll find not only uh, the introduction to the book, which you can read in its entirety. You can also find a section on the key characters of the book. And you can uh, 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 take advantage of links to all kinds of uh, documents and places around the country that are significant to the story of emancipation. Lincoln's Gamble by Todd Brewster is published by Scribner. With Eye on Books, I'm Bill Thompson.